Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. My name is Anthony. This week, Martin's co-author Linda Antonson is back to cover Ned's 10th POV chapter. And then Linda and I talk a little bit about representation in Hollywood. As you might have guessed, Linda and I take different views on this. So the second half of my interview with Linda is specifically devoted to that conversation. I hope you receive this as an example of a respectful but robust disagreement. Steve and I do a double-length review of The Children. That's the season finale with farewells to Tywin and maybe the Hound. Without further ado, here is Linda Antonson. Linda Antonson, welcome back to Electric Bookaloo. Today we're covering Ned 10. Thank you very much for having me on again, and um, it's definitely a pleasure to be talking about that, this particular chapter, because it is one of my favorites in the whole series. Yeah, I was expecting it to be much longer, because I it's so action-packed. It is, and it's, it's not just the plot element, but I feel that uh, it also serves as um, something of a turning point in uh, A Game of Thrones, and something that really further hits home the idea of uh, what kind of world this is. And mm. uh, I feel like it has a lot to do this chapter with sort of the death of chivalry. Oh, interesting. That's great. I just recently had a conversation about this uh, this idea of chivalry in, in the sense that I guess the question of that other conversation I was having is how much does Martin want to critique the entire notion of chivalry mm. and i mean there there are many characters who yeah. do service that kind of critique but there are many characters like ned who seem to feel like chivalry is is all i don't i shouldn't say all important but it was quite important for, for ned i would say honor is he doesn't necessarily hold with some of the pageantry around mm. chivalry, but certainly the the honor part of chivalry and being, I mean, he's obviously not a knight himself, but right. holding true to the ideals. Right. So Ned and, and someone like Brienne, they very much, funnily enough, neither of them are yeah. knights, but they they are the ones that sort of believe in this. And, right. and of course, the... The King's Guard that you know used to be this shining example to the realm, and this is the last. This is the death of the last vestige of that. Uh, other right. than obviously you have Barristan, but um, he has 
in the eyes of the other three kings guard in this chapter done something wrong in right. bending the knee and pledging to the new king right and then in, in sort of the present day circumstances of the book you know you've got the young upstart Jamie Lannister who clearly has different views on on what it would mean to be a king's guard i suppose um, and, and Barristan is really, he's presented as someone that Ned views as honorable. Yeah, but he is, other than that, he, the King's Guard of, of Robert. Yeah. There's a rot at the core of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and of course, we see that with Robert's behavior in this chapter as well. Sure. That the, the crown has been very heavy on his brow he he doesn't it doesn't sit well with him it doesn't he, suit him yeah he never really wanted the crown he he wanted Lyanna and he wanted to avenge the wrongs done his friends and his family right and then he ended up with the crown a queen that he's not particularly keen on either yeah and it's he says all... something really interesting in this chapter he says that Rhaegar won because he says Rhaegar yeah. won, he's with Lyanna, yeah. and here I am. Even even though I might have won the battle and won the throne, here I am stuck with Cersei, and <laughs> and this no. is for him. This is a major loss. And I mean, he says it himself, you know, like hitting her. It's not kingly, and and he he says something that's really quite ignorant. He says. How do you fight someone without actually, you know, <laughs> without actually Hitting being able them. to hit hit them, yeah. right? You know, his notion of being able to... He solves problems with a hammer. <laughs> yes, he's, he is a hammer. I mean, yes. that's, that's who he is. Yes. And of course, Cersei, if it was just about exchanging barbs, she's going to win every time. And so then Robert... You know, he feels like, oh, it's not kingly to do so. But look, she she made me do it, which I think is a, a sort of a ridiculous statement. Well, um, it is, but we—I mean, she has hit him herself. She threw a, a goblet at him at one point and chipped one of his teeth, for example. Right. So they, even these even two are. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, they they are horrible for. They each are horrible other. for each other, and they bring out the worst in each other they at the same the, time. Yeah. What an ignorant statement to say, you know, how do you fight someone without actually punching them? It's a silly, it's just a silly point of view. No, when all you have is a hammer, everything starts looking like a nail. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Let me read the uh, synopsis I wrote. So, Ned is dreaming. In his dream, he recalls arriving at a stone tower in Dorne, guarded by three Targaryen loyalists. In his dream, he is flanked by six companions. The two parties exchange words about recent events at the Trident, Dragonstone, and King's Landing. But the reason for this encounter is in the Stone Tower. In his dream, Lyanna seems to be calling for Ned. Courtesies are exhausted, and Sir Arthur Dane unsheaths his great sword, and the two parties clash. Ned wakes to find himself in a bed, having slept for six days. After an update from Alan, Robert and Cersei enter. They question Ned about Kat's actions and Ned's encounter with Jamie. Robert and Cersei exchange barbs, and then the king strikes her in the face, sending her stumbling across the room. Once she has left, Robert demands that Ned reassume his duties as Hand of the King. 
So, Linda Antonson, would you like to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or shall you and I climb the ladder of chaos? We already started climbing a little bit here. I mean, we touched upon the the chivalry aspect and the importance here of the yeah. um, of these Kingsguard and the structure. What I particularly love about the start of this chapter is the way this his dream recollection is structured something like a fairy tale. Well, oh, it's got these, you know, I looked for you on the trident. We were not there. When King's Landing fell, Sir Jamie slew your king with a golden sword, and I wondered where you were. Our knees do not bend easily. So he's got these, these answers and these questions sure. and exchanges three times. You know, you, you've got that number three, which often is significant. And I mean, you've got the three King's Guard. So, so I really like that exchange. It does feel like, you know, this is, who knows, who knows how much of this is Ned's distortion of the memory. Yeah. And with and the dreams distortion of the memory, mm. but it does really have that sense of that it's, you know, it's a very it's, different style. It's a very yeah. much more poetic writing than yeah. Than you yeah. see in Martin's prose for for the most part. This one stands out, and also with the exchange at the end with the and now it begins, no, now it ends. Uh, and the sadness, I mean, all of this is always tied up with such sadness for right. Ned. Sure. Uh, it's um, on the sad smile on Arthur Dane's lips. So the, the, there's there's such tragedy resting over the whole thing. And then, of course, we we get these little hints, which some people will put them together from A Game of right. Thrones, The Bed of Blood. Uh, yeah, the, the, that's in the very first line. Yes. It actually says, um, he dreamt an old dream of three knights in white cloaks and a tower long fallen and Liana in her bed of blood. You know, which could easily mean, you know, that Liana has been slain or something like that, right? Right. At, at this point, we, but I think that uh, there were some people who. Um, twigged to it fairly early on that this could uh, this w- was a, a phrase you could use to talk about childbed um, yeah. and uh, the dangers of, of of childbed and that's when people started wondering what exactly had happened at the Tower of Joy and why were these three kings guard left to guard it when Rhaegar definitely could have used them yeah. on the trident it is significant, and I was just talking with um, a medievalist named uh, Ken Monshane, and he, you know, he was saying in these ancient battles, you might have a thousand men behind you, but most of those men are not professional warriors, and they're probably they probably don't have weapons or horses or, or or whatever. To have a knight among that group, it's like having an additional ten men. So. If you are leaving three knights out of the battle... Three of your very best knights. Yes, three of your best, very best knights, right? So that is that is a quite a significant yeah. choice. And might have cost Rhaegar the trident. I mean, we don't, we couldn't say, but... Um, no. But yes, absolutely. It's a I mean, he had his king's garden. While it is entirely possible that Rhaegar still would have responded 
to Robert's challenge on to meet him one on one rather than sort of have the shield of his king's guard among him. The king's guard would certainly have made an effort to perhaps reach Robert ahead of Rhaegar and dispatch him. And someone like Arthur Dane with Dawn would have been an incredibly difficult opponent even for, for Robert, uh, given the properties of, the, of that sword. So, yeah, so you say some people were keen enough to point out that, you know, Lyanna could have just given birth. I mean, we have a few references in A Game of Thrones that you could start piecing together. Uh, there's the rose petals, for example. And then people started wondering, uh, does this represent the rose petals of the, the crown of blue roses that uh, Rhaegar gave Lyanna at, uh, at Harrenhal at the tourney? Oh, interesting. And Yeah, I miss that. If she has kept this with her as an important symbol, well, that starts making the whole, you know, rape and abduction story sound very fishy. Yeah, it says a storm of rose petals blew across a blood-streaked sky as blue as the eyes of death. And I, I was going to call that out and ask you what you thought about that line. Oh, well, of course, the, the eyes, you know, blue as death, as blue as the eyes of death, that makes you think of the others. And this ties nicely to the vision that Bran has of the blue flower growing out of uh, a chink in the wall. I mean, there's a blue rose. So that's where people have then uh. pieced that together with John, for example, then that the idea that, okay, he, he's on the wall. Uh, he's certainly connected to the the others and everything. And, right. um, yeah. and this blue rose that has come to symbolize you know, Rhaegar and Lyanna, particularly Lyanna, of course, is flourishing on the wall. So those two together sure. is that little trail of, of clues. So uh, I, I just love the way he he built right. up this, especially early on when you got these little clues and these com- conflicting bits of information about what really happened uh, and you start realizing more and more that Robert's view of Rhaegar personally is extremely colored by his personal hatred. Yeah, yes. And Robert has, he says things that either cannot be true or he could not know, like how many times Rhaegar <laughs> raped Lyanna. You know, he's got this thing in his mind. He's created this fiction for himself. If you look at the things Robert says... Even in this chapter, you know, that, yeah. you know, that now Rhaegar is with Lyanna. He got Lyanna. They're together. I mean, he's he's created this entire fiction for himself to make himself, I don't know, a tragic figure. He's extremely unhinged on the topic of Rhaegar and Lyanna. Yeah. It, as I said, it doesn't really, it is a complete fiction. He was, and I mean, we know that, you know, Lyanna himself, herself told Ned that she didn't really think that love was going to change robert yeah uh, yeah that's right she she had uh uh she had an understanding of what he was like but he he became obsessed with her and if they had married i'm sure it wouldn't have gone as you know badly as with cersei because liana may have been you know wild and stubborn mm-hmm. but probably not in- so inclined to spitefulness as cersei but 
they would have had fights. Yeah, it's really hard to know what would have happened. I mean, Liana's view on Robert is that, you know, he a man is a man and you're not going to change his nature. And she's probably right, but there's no really there's really no way to know because I do think that either Robert is in love with the idea of her or he's growing in love for her. He certainly would have began that union differently than was oh, Cersei, I think. Absolutely. He would have hoped, you know, I think he would have tried very hard to be a, a good husband. I imagine he would not have been drinking so much. Uh, he would have not. Sure. And he, would have n- he wouldn't have had a wife whose bed is reserved only for her brother. I mean, that, no, that, 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 that does think to improve your marriage when that's not the case, <laughs> uh, certainly. Uh, right. But would he still have visited whorehouses? Yes, maybe. I mean, I, I, the, the, uh, probably he would. And then the question is, how does the marriage survive that? Uh, I mean, Liana seemed prepared for it. Yeah, but absolutely. Even so. You know, Ned talked about how she and and Brandon were the two wild wolves. Uh, Sure. (laughs) You know, would she have welcomed him home with a dagger in her hand when he came crawling back late (laughs) some night? And well, whatever the case, you can see why Liana is not nearly as infatuated with Robert as he is. I feel like whatever else is the possibility, she has fallen for Rhaegar. And as we learn over and over and over in this story arc, when you pursue a union on the basis of love, it does not end well. That is not the world that this is creating. If you pursue, like if you were like Rob and you pursue, you know, the wife that you love rather than the wife for political arrangement, it never, those things never end well. No. I can't think of one example of a marriage that began, you know, motivated by love in the story that ends well. Yeah, they're uh, quite uh, far between, I would say. If we look um, historically in the setting, um, the uh, the marriage of Jaehaerys and Alessandri worked out pretty well for a num- King Jaehaerys, the uh, the old king. They, oh yeah, maybe. But, yeah, but okay. even they had yeah. um, periods. They had two separations over mm-hmm. uh, disagreements. Sure. And no, but that would be a great counter example. You know, I was thinking of Tyrion's marriage to Tysha, yeah, which of course is doomed from the start. Doomed from the start. Uh, Jorah Mormont of uh, wooing and winning mm-hmm. Lynesse Hightower and thinking. He thinking it was, you know, love and, uh, you know, an infatuation from her as well. Uh, Even Lysa, who seems, you know, to be in love with Littlefinger, this is this doesn't work out well for her. No. Uh, of course, it's a very one sided <laughs> yeah, in, in, in that situation. Uh, yeah. She uh, doesn't quite realize that she's their own sister there. Uh, but well, and then you could look at you know uh, Baelish wanting to couple with Cat, and of course that doesn't work out for well for Baelish. No, so no, love uh, tends to backfire. It, it's not a setting that is kind to romantics. Well, and because we're so focused in the story on 
social elites and political elites, you know, the marriage and the marriage bed and the progeny from the marriage bed, these are all very, very political decisions. These all have very important political ramifications. They can bring alliances and then they can end, you know, they can end friendships. I think we see that with, um, if we look at Cersei's side here and the sort of the, the look at their marriage as well from her point of view, I mean, she enters into the marriage on a false pretenses to start with. She has no intention of giving up sleeping with Jamie, but she wants to be the queen. Right. And then besides, you have to say fairly unfairly on the wedding night, because uh, she wasn't planning to stop sleeping with Jamie. But when uh, Robert gets drunk and says the wrong name, she is like, right. that's it. Access closed for you. Not yes, interested. Exactly. You screwed up. Yeah. So it's not like she can accept that, okay, we both prefer someone else, but you know, we happen to be the king and the mm-hmm. queen and we'll have some legitimate heirs. And uh, she immediately goes into full on vengeance mode for that. And um right. and you know, starts the very much the downfall for Robert. I think. Robert was somebody who who was dependent on people liking him. You know, he was a very gregarious social person who liked good food, good friends. And then he's stuck with somebody who hates him. Right. I don't know. And maybe you could answer this for me. I don't know whether Robert has just repeated the lie to himself so often so that now he believes it. Or maybe he once had an inkling that Liana was not captured, that Liana went willingly with Rhaegar, and he just could not accept that fact. Yeah, I, I think he must have had some some little inkling about it and just immediately buried it. And then, yes, since then he has repeated the story and he gets fiercer and fiercer about it all the time. But perhaps the reason that he gets so ferocious about telling that version of the story is because somewhere buried at the back of his mind is that doubt Hmm. Hmm. Uh, because it's so infected so poisonous yes he's become this grievance monster i suppose he's so driven by this one event in his life that's built on nothing it's built on vapor and but it's become core to his identity And it makes him such a... He wants Ned to pity him. He wants Ned to continue to grieve his, you know... Indulge him in it. And uh, yes, I mean, he's wallowing in it because at some point, I mean, he didn't realize... If he ever realized it, it was too late to pull himself out of it. You get little glimmers of it, like here, like where he he starts kind of looking and like, what, what happened to me? Like he, he yeah, occasionally he has this moment where he wakes up. What ha- what happened to me? I, I how how can I be like this? I I used to be young, strong, uh, healthy, happy, and and it's just yeah. it just snowballed from the death of Liana, the rage that consumed him. And I mean, we see that really revenge. I mean, that's another yeah. thing that we see repeated in the story as well. That. Revenge doesn't end well. He had yeah, his vengeance right. on Rhaegar. Did it taste well? Did it fix things for him? 
No. No, and he even tells Ned, I think in a very early chapter, he tells Ned, I kill him every night in my, my dreams. Like, it, it, he can never kill him enough no. to quench that thirst for revenge. And so now he's just, it's, it's consumed. It's, and, and, That's all yeah, he Yeah, and because he has allowed it to consume him, it's the right, only thing that he right. feels anything for any longer. I thought that the... The the trio of Ned, Cersei, and Robert in that room was an interesting trio uh, because I think that they're all lying on some level. So Ned repeats the lie that he gave the order for Catelyn to take Tyrion, yeah. right? And, you know, whatever sort of good intention he has, that's the lie he has yeah. told and he's going to stick with. And then Cersei lies in saying that that it was actually ne- a, a Ned. drunken Ned who stumbled <laughs> oh. out of a brothel who who attacks Jamie on you know in the middle of the street. Yeah. It's just a it's an absurd. Yeah, lie, I was just right? thinking about that when I was rereading. I'm like, okay, Cersei, you know, you you think you're smart, and you have you're, yeah, you're, it's you, it's a lie that doesn't yeah. have any plausibility at all. To to claim that Ned stumbled drunk out of a brothel, <laughs> and of course Robert continues to repeat yeah. that lie to himself yeah. about Lyanna, um, and he he always with Ned he's he always goes back to that refrain, and Ned never corrects him. I, I think he knows that there's no point that. Yeah, there's no point, or I, I don't know, but it just seems like if he was truly Robert's friend. At some point, I think that you would want to, you know, this guy's lived with this pitiable deception, self-deception for 14 years. At some point, if you're a friend, don't you, don't you say something? I, I, maybe maybe Robert's not the kind of guy who can listen to that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, we see his sore points here. You know, Cersei brings up the, you know, if any man had dared to speak to a Targaryen, Targaryen yeah. as he spoke to you. And it's like, if you take me for ears, you can just see how he... Immediately gets furious, uh, and then his face is dark with anger. And then she pushes uh, the other button. You know, you ought to be in skirts, and me in male. And he, right. and he knows that he's not as you know fit and strong and like he used to be. So that's that's a dangerous one too. Uh, yeah, she knows that any sort of challenge to his masculinity uh, is going to. It's man, it's just going to set him off. Some notable introductions in this chapter. Well, gosh, we meet uh, Martin Castle, Thea Wool, Ethan Glover, Mark Riswell, Howland Reed, and Lord Dunstan. And this is sort of Ned's flank, you know, when he's dreaming. We meet and say goodbye to them in short order, other than Howland Reed. That's right. That's right. And then, of course, uh, they stand against uh, Arthur Dane, who we've heard before. Mm. But we, in his dream, we get to meet his greatsword, Dawn. And then Oswell went and Gerald Hightower. But uh, that group of the Kingsguard, this is, you know, you, you do get the sense that... It's all, it's not quite even, but man, you're gonna need all seven of those of those fighters to overtake these three Kingsguard. And of course, later we learn that Ned only survived because of Howland Reed. That's right. Now, 
This brings me to a show difference. All right. So the way that this is uh, brought into the show is not through Ned's dream, but through Bran's green scene. Right. And when Bran sees this, you know, he's been told this story about how his father defeated Sir Arthur Dane. You know, the way that it's presented in the show is that actually Arthur Dane had the better of Ned and then Halvin Reed stabs him in the back. But the other crucial difference is it's not seven against three, it's six against two. And for whatever reason, Sir Arthur Dane doesn't have his greatsword. He's not fighting with two hands on a greatsword. He's fighting with two swords, and one in both hand. Um, and I think that maybe that just looks better for the choreography of the show. But I was a little disappointed. I mean, I was a little disappointed that, yeah. that I didn't get to see Dawn in action. You know, everyone who had read the books was very disappointed not to see this in the first season. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, right. really looking forward to seeing it there as as a dream sequence. Um, this kind of fell under the whole we don't want to give away too much too early, um, so they pushed it later. Right. Um, Linda, I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about uh, ethnic representation in the HBO adaptations, because I think that you and I have differing opinions on this, and I thought it would be valuable to hash those out in a professional and respectful way. Absolutely. For the most part, I come to these books and to these shows for entertainment. Um, You know, I, I have fun with them. It's a nice little excursion from my other concerns it's fantasy and it provides what fantasy provides it's something of an escape that said i do think that there are certain ethical decisions uh that are attached to casting um as there are ethical decisions attached to almost everything in the real world so i'd like to hear you talk a little bit about you know, your experience, experiencing the narrative dually versus the, the books and, and the shows. And then I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about your preferences for casting. Yeah. I mean, as a baseline, I'd have to say, you know, I'm I'm very much a purist. Um, and um, that, that's apparently a very dangerous thing to say say on Twitter because last time I used that argument, I was told, well, so was Hitler, and that was the end of that polite conversation. I obviously did not mean a purist in, in that way. Yeah. But, you know, if you look at the castings of Game of Thrones, there were really only two castings that I had, you know, thumbs up on. I thought that uh, Harry Lloyd was fantastic as Viserys and Conleth Hill as Varys. The rest I had... A list of complaints about. Sure, uh, I, I you know I like. <laughs> so if Jamie's, you had been casting, it would have been an entirely different cast. It would have been an entirely different cast. Like you know, I complained about Jamie's hair color, especially after the first season, where they uh-huh. decided they didn't need to bother with a blonde wig any longer, and it just went progressively more brown. Uh, and like Lysa, she is described as fat in the books. Why is she not allowed to be fat? Uh, which is also a representation issue, and you know, and Martin has put this character in, and yes, she's not a nice character, mm-hmm. but do you can you only cast people who you perceive as somehow marginalized in in nice roles, and and that 
is a whole other can of worms, really. So I feel like, all right, so I was just talking about the difference between the hair color of Theon and Rob. Mm. So it's actually quite important for their characterization that Rob has this auburn hair in the books, which looks to Kat's eyes and to Ned's eyes, he looks like he favors the Tullys. Yeah. That's it's an important detail because of course it makes someone like Jon Snow look all the more starkish, right? Yeah. And this is going to be a problem for 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 Cat, right? So Theon has black hair and in the show it's reversed. All of a sudden you have Theon with auburn-ish yeah. hair and Rob Stark with black hair and I never cared when I watched. I because those actors to me were so crucial to my experience of that narrative that I almost at this point can't imagine another actor in that role and their hair color just it was it's such a superficial thing in retrospect. So I guess the the actors won me over I suppose mm. I, I should say. Yeah, I would say that I'm a little more towards the whole that, like, you should try and be as faithful as you possibly can be. Like, I know George actually expressed something similar on a uh, on a live journal, not about Game of Thrones, because he doesn't really comment on the adaptation of his own works, but uh, other adaptations, like superhero adaptations and so on. He, he doesn't like when... Um, somebody adapting something tries to you know second guess the author or anything like that and make improvements and such and there are obviously changes that you know you have to do for practical reasons and yes i i you know i do realize that you can't match up like perfectly hair colors mm. and heights and what have you uh, sometimes you cast you know just uh, whoever feels like they're inhabiting the character best that's Um, how i feel (laughs) yeah you know then there's the whole world building side of me that like it's a huge thing for me and then i i get really upset about those things so i certainly Tyrion famously i think Tyrion famously you know he had this platinum hair in the beginning yeah and then of course you know you go through screen tests or whatever and you know you decide do we want to continue to distract people with something that clearly looks like a wig or something? Mm. It just doesn't look right. Um, You know, the other, I guess the first time I actually encountered this was with the movie Shawshank Redemption. Are you familiar with it's a sort of a classic. I have seen it at some point, but I wouldn't say that I'm super familiar with it. So it's a Stephen King story. And, the role of Red in that show is played by this Irish redhead, or in the book, in in the short story or whatever. It's played by this Irish redhead, and of course, famously in the movie, it's played by Morgan Freeman, um, who's not an Irish redhead. <laughs> but, but I absolutely cannot imagine that movie without Morgan Freeman he just he was so integral to that movie that i just think i'm so glad that they chose the best actor yeah. for that role because of in this way the best actor for the role didn't have 
red hair and it didn't matter. It absolutely didn't matter yeah. to me. I think it may fall a little bit on also where, as in, I'd say that I'm much more of a reader than a TV and movie watcher, but I, I uh. vastly more enjoy and get engaged with books than with TV shows. Mm. Um, so it's very hard for a TV show to have that impact on me where I absolutely say, oh, well, this has completely changed how how I view things. Um, mm. Like when I reread Song of Ice and Fire now, there's only one thing I have with me from Game of Thrones that has in any way affected my reading experience. Mm. I don't see any of the actors. But right, interesting. But I hear Conleth Hill's voice for Boris. That that is actually <laughs> the only thing that has stuck sure. with me as uh, in my imagination. So I, I I gravitate towards text over over right. visuals. Um, interesting. Well, and you had a much longer relationship with these books than most most folks, most show yeah. watchers anyway. Most show watchers experience it on the screen. Yeah. And of course, it, or even with me, like just reading in parallel. Right. Um, so I, I read most of the, you know, most of the books before start of the second season. Mm. But even so, I was, I was, you know, I had a parallel experience. Yeah. It, it, it does was, make it a big a, difference. It, it's a uh, big difference for sure. Yeah. I think the other difference that we should probably call out is that I'm an American. Mm. And so my relationship to racial constructs is going to be colored by my relationship to American history. Yeah. No. And so for me, when I see casting decisions critiqued on the basis of race, I immediately think, oh, no, but this is an ethical decision. Mm. Americans need to make ethical decisions, especially in these ways. But I'm imagining that, you know, you don't have that same relationship to American history, for example. No, I mean, obviously, it's impossible to have the same when you you haven't grown up there. And while I would say that there is... Uh, a pressure for the what I would sort of say, you know, identity politics uh, in Sweden as well. It feels very much imposed on by and borrowed from the US because you often see it put forward in such a way in Sweden where you realize that it doesn't really fit the experience here. So, are, so is it a little, is it in a sense, these identity politics is a little bit of sort of ideological imperialism like this is not something that swedish folk would naturally care about but we feel like we need to care about it because you know american media dominates something like that i would argue that it is that it has very much been embraced by you know if we talk politically about mm. by the left in in particular and whereas i would call myself very much fiscally and socially left um i've found mm it's very difficult to see how that meshes with um, our actual, you know, history. And, and there's been these odd cases of trying to, well, we need to care as much about, uh, you know, the uh, uh, representation of, of, for example, black people in, in Sweden as they do in the US. And because we also have a history of, we had, you know, for a few years, an attempt at one, 
colony for for slave trade in, in America, which I think pretty much went nowhere, and there was never any slavery in Sweden or anything like that. And it gets mm. so odd when people try and somehow bring those things up and and try and and equal somehow say that it has as much of an impact on Swedish history. It's obviously something one should be aware of and not you know yeah ignore and at the same time i suppose that it's just the it's just the way of things that swedish media and swedish media consumers are going to have to stand in some relationship with american politics unavoidable absolutely it's unavoidable right and i think that well if i look at my own sort of reactions to this and relationship to it i have i do have an issue with like i'd say it's a this is a hierarchy of, of issues where one starts at i don't actually ultimately believe in the idea that you should be changing things for like the sort of ethical reasons because i you know the the climate that i have grown up in and so on for me it's very hard to see that as a necessity I understand the reasoning and so on, but I guess I, I feel it's important for representation, but I guess I feel like, for example, why in this particular show was it necessary here or is this, is it really an altruistic decision? Because surely, I mean, the bottom line for most of these decisions comes down to that HBO does not want to yeah. get called out for it. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like, I mean, there's two things happening, yeah. I suppose. I, I feel like, of course, I, I'm not expecting an HBO executive to do the right thing for the right reason. So I, it's it's enough for me for that person to do the right thing. And I don't care if they're if they're feeling pressured or whatever. Yeah. I, I, I really don't care what their motives yeah. are. I want them to do the right thing. But then I guess the other question is, is it really the right thing? And I wanted to ask you, did you ever, or were you ever a fan of the original Star Trek series? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that I, I wish I yeah. came to it late, but uh, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I was a kid, and I used to watch it with my father. And my experience, I just enjoyed it. You know, they were sort of pushing borders mm. on Captain Kirk you know, kissing a hurrah or yeah. something like that. And to me, it never crossed my mind that this was something that was scandalous. Yeah. I was a kid growing up in the late 70s, early 80s in Northern California. This is not, there's no scandal here at all. And then later hearing other people talk about their experience, like for instance, Whoopi Goldberg has said, when I saw a on the television screen, it changed my life. Mm. Her lived experience was so much different than mine that it actually was crucially important to her that a hero was represented on the screen in a time when there just that representation just didn't exist. Mm. And so in retrospect, I thought, oh, for her, it was crucially important. And to me, it didn't matter at all. Mm. And the reason why it didn't matter to me at all, because of wh- who I am and my experience of the lived world and where I grew up. But I want to be able to affirm someone else's experience that says, no, Ahura was crucial to me. You know, it wasn't inconsequential that she was a, a black woman on television. Absolutely. That, it, you know, it can make an uh, enormous difference to see 
having you know gay characters and 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 women in roles as well that they haven't had that uh, will obviously be you know television can be extremely um, important that way in, in showing things that you couldn't imagine before so so there is certainly an importance to it but yeah. but i guess what you what one feels today which makes me you know be a bit like a stubborn horse and and, and kick at people basically <laughs> is that it everything seems to be about there is this huge fear this culture where the, and this this seems to be very particularly american this there's some sort of self-flagellation going on about mm-hmm. past mistakes you know i used to feel that way too and i and i think it's because i grew up where i grew up and then i moved to dayton ohio which is a very segregated city still not by force but just people's prejudice mm. and now that i'm in dayton i realize oh this isn't sort of lip service and you know superfluous sensitivity mm. stuff this is just a continued reality of racial discrimination in america and my feeling is that there's just not enough there's just not enough that's being done but is and i can totally yeah. tell i mean yeah. look I, I i there's no way i could even imagine what it's like to experience american culture from the outside i mean i've i've lived in canada and i've lived in africa and i've lived in england and i can i i have friends in those parts of the world. And so I can kind of see what America looks like with all of our faults, mm. <laughs> with all of our many, many faults uh, from an outsider point of view. But I can never live that point of view. Mm. By the same token, I think it's probably impossible for me to actually you know, live in the skin of, an, of someone who's been historically discriminated against. No, absolutely. Certainly, I, you know, Sweden, you know, when, when I grew up, it's less so now, was, of course, incredibly white. So, you know, if I had written a fantasy novel where I, you know, largely thought yeah. of my own experiences, it, right. it would certainly have been very white. Yeah. It's, um, you know, that's that's just the, the, the nature of it, that you're very affected by by your sure. surroundings and... Um, I mean, it's it's a difficult. I mean, there there is an important, absolutely an important aspect to it. But then, if one looks at sort of the discussion that comes up around it when you talk about these adaptation changes and so on, there are unfortunately people who are very disingenuous about it and make it very. And I guess certainly make you makes me more more opposed to serving. Uh, you know, something that they feel is a good idea because they are being so peculiar about how they argue mm. things. For example, mm-hmm. um, there will always be people whenever, with a change on Game of Thrones, for example, where Salador Son was cast uh, uh, as a black actor and also um, uh, in uh, in Karth. Um, oh, uh, uh, Zaxos. Zaxos, yeah. People will say that, oh, well, you know, they would say that um, I always thought this character was black. I was like, yeah, okay, pay pay some. And that's just so disrespectful to the text. Like, no, really, you you, you can't pretend that. But people would be use these bullshit argument to instead of just saying, yeah, this is a major change. You know, it really doesn't mesh with the world building. 
and it is done for, you know, if you want to call them ethical or political reasons, that is the reasoning for it. It really doesn't have any basis in the text, but we are okay with it. With that honesty, I would say, you know, fine, they can cast the show however they like. I don't like it, and I don't necessarily agree with the reasons for it, but it is what it is. Um, but you get people trying to justify the changes by saying, well, um, it doesn't actually explicitly describe the skin color in the text. Well, no, but describe the skin color of all the family of the person, for example. And you're saying that this person is from, um, you know... Yeah, but I guess I wonder why it's such a major... I mean, to me, it doesn't feel like... Mm. I'm on record as saying yeah. I love I love Salador San yeah. as, as he's such a fun addition to the show because yeah. he's to me that actor brings such such a sort of zest for life. Mm. I just want to follow that guy around everywhere and just see what he's doing. I just <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I think he's the only one that's having fun in Westeros. So I mean yeah. I love that guy so much. And then I think well then why is that why is it actually a major change? Uh, are we are we putting too much emphasis on w- world world building over and against the uh, to me the all important fact of the actor's ability? Uh, that's that's my question. Yeah. Well, I think here again we're falling on the whole side of I'm on the side of the text sort of more than you know. Obviously, I want the adaptation to be well acted, but mm. I think so many people don't understand how utterly crucial world building is to fantasy. Uh, How the fact that you have to sell this world to people and make it feel like a reality because otherwise people, you won't care about the people, right? Mm. It's less important on a TV show. I think you can get away with more hand-waving, although we saw that towards the final seasons, that hand-waving was biting them. So I've had people, and I've seen multiple times people uh, saying that somebody's complaining about them casting uh, a black actor in Game of Thrones or House of the Dragon, but it's a show with dragons. It can have whatever. And that, just that argument makes me furious, I have to say. Let's agree that world building is actually mm-hmm. crucial. So we, So let's start there. We totally, we both agree on this point. Because it is so crucial, because world building is so important, to me, the ethical elements of casting become important. And, I mean, look, if this if this show was cast in the mid-90s, it could have been all white and it would have gotten very little resistance because that was just a different world, you know, back when, when Martin was writing these books. Yeah. That's certainly not the world we're living in now. Yeah. And I think... I think that we know better. We, I think that hopefully we've learned that to only ever show white people on the screen, that this it's it's actually a ridiculous decision to make. And then, of course, then the question is, does it take you out of the experience of the world? Are you now living, you know, in a different time and place? For you, I, I think it does take you out of it. It does. In a way that maybe it doesn't affect... No, I don't no know, because, but... you know, whenever I saw Salah Rousseau, I was like, Jesus, the guy is uh, Le Seni. They breed for the Valyrian look. It, it's like, 
it is the last place where you'd have mm. somebody from an old family. I mean, there with him like being a standalone character, he, you know, he could have been adopted into a family. For example, you you could find explanations. Yeah, yeah. What I hear you saying is, okay, make the change. But be honest about why you're making the change. Yeah, I think be you know, honest. Tell, tell, us, yeah. tell us that you've made this uh, change for political reasons or ethical reasons or whatever you yeah. want to say. And tell us that you're not being faithful to the text and that it's disingenuous to just try to make up a reason for this. Or, I mean, if you make up – I mean, they, they did with Zorozo on Daxos because, you know, it, it's kind of odd that the two decisions they made for uh, – significant black actors in uh, the beginning of Game of Thrones was Alicene, famously known to be, you know, pale and golden haired, and a Carthian merchant, famously known as the Milkman. There were there were other characters they could have chosen, I think, wicked equal like Ben Ben Plum or something like that, right? Yes, and they... why did they not have why did they have Ross instead of Shataya and Alayaya? Mm-hmm. So they took out some characters yeah. and put in others. But with Zorozo and Daxos, they, they had some idea about how he was a foreigner who moved into Karth and, and made his wealth, which turned out to be no wealth at all, uh, because he scammed them all. And fine, if you, you can make a backstory that works. Mm. Yeah, I can buy that. And if we look then at House of the Dragon now, they've, they've made a very... Here, you'd have to say they've made an enormously significant change by making Corlys Velaryon black. Uh, and if one you know looks at various spy photos and so on, it seems like just about everyone in the Valarian circle is black. And- well, I th- I mean, look, I think that to me, it feels like you're always going to make a change. There, there, it's always going to be the case. It's yes. always going to be. It's very rare that the right actor is going to look exactly Absolutely. how they look in the book. And so then the question is, then what's too far? Is the skin color too far? Is the hair color too far? Is the fact that um, <laughs> that Emil Clark has dark eyebrows and and platinum yeah. blonde hair? Is that too? It was that was too far for my wife. My yeah. wife was like, "Why don't her eyebrows match her yeah. hair?" You know, that's the kind of thing. So then the question is, all right, if if almost if almost none of these actors perfectly represent the mm. characters in the books, then why are we excluding black actors? I mean, I guess with the Valarians and their connection here to the Targaryens, it's the fact that we have such a strong overall description of um, what Valyrians are supposed to look like and the fact that they were a very homogenous population. So because they didn't decide to break with what they had already done on Game of Thrones, I mean, they could have cast all the Targaryens as black as well. Uh, because obviously, famously, George said I even considered making the Valyrians black. But I had... well, because they're so they're so much modeled after the the mythology of Egypt. I I mean that to me that would have been an interesting decision. The Egypt Rome there there's uh, but yes, uh, so he he seriously considered it. Uh, he opted against it for two reasons, or or one almost uh, that he wasn't sure that the idea of a foreign conqueror and basically the mad bad guys of the series should be black so he made he made a decision that was for to some extent political reasons there and he also said he really wanted 
because they were his kind of elves. He seemed quite taken with the idea of the silver hair. He really mm. wanted to keep that. And then he said, but then I'm going to stray into drow territory if I have these black-skinned characters with white hair or silver hair. And that's that's too strong in the fantasy sphere, the dark elf look. Mm. Uh, I don't want to go there because they are also um, associated with evil. Uh, mm. Yeah, and I guess the question is, why are they associated with evil? I mean, I think that there are there there's racism that is on the surface that has to do with the emotionality of the person and habits, but there's also structural racism that often people don't see in themselves. And I'm of the mind that, yeah, we're probably all a little bit racist uh, in that you know whether or not it's sort of an admission that we're making or not. So I mean, look. You know, why are dark elves evil? There's probably a little bit of racism there. Well, I would agree with you completely that uh, by nature, humans are racist because we grab, as in to some degree, because we gravitate to our group ever since we were, you know, little tribal groups. It was, we are the people, the others outside of mm. our group, the ones that don't look like us, the ones that don't dress like us, they're somebody else. Uh, that's the tribal mentality that yeah that we have to live with i think that we're never going to erase the fact that different we we can acknowledge it and 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 be be aware of it yeah but one way to to expand people's imaginations is by good storytelling and i feel like as long as a show like game of thrones or house of the dragon tells the story well I will certainly forget that Corliss should have been white at one point. I mean, to me, that feels like if you're telling a good story and the actor is inhabiting the role, then uh, then it actually is quite a, a powerful and ethical dis- decision to portray someone that's maybe outside of your little tribe as someone who can engender empathy. True. Of course, some of us are going to be sitting there and thinking, okay, Corliss looks like he is, you know, he doesn't look mixed race. Um, Two generations back, they provided a queen for the Targaryens. And they are all looking lily white. Yeah, I guess I just... I can't suspend. To me, I I can't suspend that. I get it. I get that you can't... That's always going to be sort of in the back of your mind. Yeah. And and for me, I think that I can easily forget yeah. those sorts of things. No, but it's just the difference in how uh, one you know sees adaptations. And uh, mm-hmm. I say that you know I'm much pickier when you're talking about something that's likely to be uh, adapted once. Mm-hmm. If 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 you're talking about like a Shakespeare play. You can have a dog play Richard the Third. It's like the, <laughs> well, the dog why is version. That? Tell me why. I mean, if I'm watching, let's say I'm watching the Disney uh, Robin Hood, yeah. and Robin Hood is played by a fox. Yeah, I'm in. Yeah, I, I, no, no, yeah, uh, that was fine. my first Just exposure make... to Robin Hood, and and you know, I I've always thought that some of the sheriffs later on look an awful lot like that lion. Uh, there's some <laughs> a- actors, so that clearly. Colored my so I'm happy. Look, I'm happy with that. Yeah. I, I, I can do it if you tell the story well enough. Yeah, 
I am happy for Robin Hood to be a fox. And um, but you know, when you live with a text, and then you, it's going to be the one and only shot at seeing this. Uh, you know, you you have this. At least I have this very strong desire to see what's in my head, or something as it. close as possible to what's in my head. A- yeah, and then, I get it. And then I then I would say, yeah, but there are other people watching. It's not all about what's in Linda's head. No, and, there and, the, and the other people watching, they have a different lived experience. And some of these things are... But if they had are... a black cordless in their head, then they need new glasses. No, I never had a black cordless in my head. But when I saw the actor, you know, they put out an image yeah. of like, you know, the, the costume or whatever. Yeah. I was like, cool. I'm glad yeah. they made this decision. I, I think that there ought to be more black protagonists in Game of Thrones. And I'm happy to see how this one, you know, I'm happy to see how this iteration of the story presents itself. Yeah. That's just the way that I approach yeah. it. Let's look, let's take, take a look at Tolkien. So for instance, people have hit Tolkien for the way that he represents skin color in that story. And it's very often forgotten that several of the hobbits are supposed to have a darker skin color. Like so, for Sam as a Harfoot should have a a darker brown skin color, but of course the way that the hobbits are always represented on the screen has been white. Yeah. So if that's the decision that Hollywood has made for generations, casting white characters in Egyptian roles, casting white characters in Jesus roles, casting white characters in all the, you know, Alexander the Great, for instance. Yeah. All of these characters, there's just been this long history of rendering white characters who are non-white, that there, you can see why there's an impetus to try to correct the scales. Yes. And, and I think, and I think we would agree that just tell us that that's what you're doing. You know, tell us that that you're trying to correct a, a sin that previous generations have made. Yeah, and yeah I'm, I'm I feel like it would changes. be for the discourse around things that if if there was more of an openness, uh, I think it would overall go down better. I mean, there's always going to be people who who dislike it simply on a racist basis, but. A lot of those who are, you know, like me, very attached to the text, um, mm. just, you know, would prefer to see an honesty about why you make adaptation changes. And uh, in some cases, it can be important for dispelling the notion mm. that you feel like you're, uh, oh, the author did something wrong. For example, I've seen people critique the lack of black people in Westeros uh, but on the other hand they they don't respond very well then when you tell them that well, this is a Europe that never had a slave trade yeah but it's not Europe at all that's the, that's the point I mean if, if Martin wanted yeah. to include a place like Dorne he could have done it and, he, and, yeah. I, and I think he's talented enough of a storyteller to, to have done it with a sense of authenticity uh, it just so happens that that wasn't really on his agenda in the mid '90s. No, and would it be on his agenda? I mean, you envision a story a certain way from your, you know, from your experiences, um, mm. and I mean, yes, you could have had a, a migration from the Summer Isles, for example. 
Yeah, I, I think he could have done it. I, I think he easily could have. He, he's talented enough to uh, force my disbelief out the window on so many yes. issues. You know, I'm not just yeah. suspending disbelief. Like I'm in the I'm in the yeah. world. Like, yeah, he, he's talented enough to do that. It's just that it wasn't on his mm. radar to do that. And I, I it, it very well could be that if he was writing in today's world, he is attuned to these kinds mm. of conversations, that he would have written a different story. And I think that. Whenever you're going to adapt for the screen, the deity in the room is not the original text. The deity in the room is the story. And if you think that you need to change the text in service to the story, I feel like you you have to make that decision. That the story is guides everything. If you can't tell the story you want to tell on the screen by being faithful to the text, I think that you have to change the text. That's my sense of it. I was it was very interesting because I I formulated some comments uh, to have as a guideline on before starting this and and I'm basically <laughs> you know at the opposite like if you think you need to change the text beyond you know budget what have you yeah. all these things don't adapt it <laughs> if you think there's something in this text that doesn't mesh with today and you can't present it mm. as it was originally intended don't adapt it. <laughs> There's so much of film that we would have lost, you know. We we wouldn't we wouldn't have Shawshank Redemption. I, we're about to see we're about to see both Foundation and Dune represented on the screen. I'm looking forward to it. If they don't change Foundation significantly, I will be disappointed <laughs> because it, it's a story that absolutely needs to be updated. No, no, I mean, that, there I, my... I will actually. We had a discussion about that, uh, Elio and I, just recently. And when you're talking about science fiction, which tends to be more of looking from the point of now and forward. When the now point has changed, I see the argument a little bit more for science fiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I actually made some comments on Twitter a while back when we watched the adaptation of Brave New World. And I said that, you know, something along the lines of, you know, considering my comments on Game of Thrones, uh, you know, it might seem odd that I will say that I, I liked brave new world because it is it deviates a lot from the text on the other hand i can see why this is a text that otherwise they would have said we can't adapt it it is too outdated as a vision of the future and too outdated in the uh, opinions and attitudes that it presents for the future but then i was that i think you should call it inspired by Brave New World. It is not an adaptation yeah. of Brave New World. It is a story inspired by Brave New World. Yeah, yeah. There's there is a, a blur. Absolutely, there's a, there is a wide there for sure. Line, but it certainly tended more towards the uh, inspired by Brave New World. Yeah. Well, yeah. Linda, I'm so glad that we had this conversation. I mean, look, I just feel like this is the venue for these kinds of conversations. Uh, yeah. I think that I, I think I understand your position a little bit better, and. Um, yeah. And I'm I'm glad that we're we're able to do it in a way that you know we can be respectful yeah. and and agree to disagree on many things, but also find some common ground here and there. Uh, absolutely, I'm uh, appreciate that I I had this opportunity because you say the this kind of is a very important topic. It needs to be carefully considered, and uh, I certainly acknowledge that I you know. 
I cannot see the American perspective from the inside and I can't see the, you know, how it, you know, matters to see uh, yourself represented. Um, It, it's, uh, it's a very different uh, experience than, than what you have growing up in Sweden in the, uh, in the eighties and nineties. Um, well, um, yeah, no, I, I appreciate you being willing to to have a hard conversation with me and and make it such an interesting and enjoyable experience. So thank you. Yeah. Rick, how you doing, buddy? You, you don't know what it's like out there. Hey, man, do, do you even know what it's like out there? No, not really. I've been mostly kind of flying around in helicopters, carving likenesses of Michonne into cell phones, that kind of thing. What is it like out there? Oh, well, I think it's time to find out, man. Last I saw your wife, Michonne, was out uh, following a giant wagon train. That that sounds pretty weird, but it seems like a family-friendly outfit. I mean, she's got RJ and Judah with her, right? Um, actually, she kind of left them to be raised by... Negan and Daryl. Well, crap. Hold on, let me get my boots. All right, well, Rick is getting ready. Aaron and I are too. We're preparing to once again recommission The Watching Dead out of mothball status to find out what's going on with Rick and Michonne, The Ones Who Live. The six-part miniseries premieres Sunday, February 25th on AMC, and we'll be ready with our full episodic coverage each Tuesday. And afterwards, who knows? Maybe we'll check out Dead City. Find our coverage for The Ones Who Live by searching for The Watching Dead or Bald Move Pulp wherever you listen to podcasts. FX is adapting James Clavell's best-selling novel, Shogun, into a 10-part miniseries this spring. Set in the shogunate period of Japan at the turn of the 15th century, Shogun depicts the rise of a feudal lord to Shogun, as seen through the eyes of a shipwrecked English sailor. It's loosely based on the real-life exploits of William Adams and Tokugawa Ieyasu. Shogun has already been successfully adapted back in 1980 with a widely acclaimed miniseries starring Richard Chamberlain, featuring intricate plots, political scheming, complex characters, and thrilling action. This time, husband and wife team Justin Marks and Rachel Kondo try to recapture the successes of the novel and early adaptations while increasing the levels of historical and cultural accuracy that are often perceived as flaws of this and similar works. Starring Hiroyuki Sonata from The Last Samurai, Mortal Kombat, and John Wick 4, with Cosmo Jarvis of Peaky Blinders, Raised by Wolves, etc., joining the truly massive cast required to bring this complex world to life. Join Aaron and I each week as we deep dive into each episode, uncovering the mysteries, the intrigue, and the glory of Shogun. Shogun premieres on FX Hulu Tuesday, February 27th at the two-part debut. Our podcast will release each Thursday thereafter. Get our Shogun coverage by searching for Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. And now Steve and I cover The Children. This is the season finale that features the departure of Tywin and Jojen. Bran, Mira, and Hodor make it to the Three-Eyed Raven. Danny has to lock up Drogon. Kyburn says that he can not only help the mountain, but make him stronger. And we have the famous showdown between Brienne and the Hound. Without further ado, here is comic Steve Osborne. 
Steve, would you rather have your final moments of life upon a beautiful fjord like the hound did? Or would you rather die <laughs> on the toilet? Like um, I'd take the toilet. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna guess. All right, yeah, I think that a lot of people might think that that's an embarrassing way to go out. And I think maybe Tywin thinks that too. I think he, he you know, well, that's your legacy, right? Shamed. What's 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 the next song gonna be? I mean, I I've had some of my most profound alone moments in the privy. Well, yeah, I, and it's and a, the thing it's is, it's really if, a place of comfort for me, to be honest. And if so, like, here's the thing: let's say I'm on the fjord, yeah. and I'm chances are I'm I'm probably gonna poop myself in the death process anyway. Sure, yeah, might as well now, be on the toilet. If I'm already on the toilet, anything like, ah, well, I mean, that's to be expected. I mean, you're going into the bathroom, you're not gonna be like, oh man, what a mess. <laughs> <laughs> and there's there's comfort, um, die doing what you love, I guess. Yeah, I, I think that for most people, they would prefer the fjord, but you and I. You and I might challenge that notion. You and well, I might yeah. cons- consider the privy. Consider the privy. What if this is all I've got and there is no afterlife or I saddled up to the wrong God or gods? All these different things going through your head, right? And you see this beautiful fjord. And to me, that, I mean, like on one hand, you're like, okay, this is the last thing I'm going to see on this earth. At least it's beautiful. But then there's this other sense of like, it could feel like a mockery. As you're fading, it's like, well, this is this is it. This could be it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas on the toilet, there's something a little bit more profound in this idea of, look, man, I'm just the Earth's waste. <laughs> uh, so, okay, where should we start? There's a lot, man. In fact. I think we were about 40 minutes in and uh, I go, this is the same, uh, same episode where Stannis's army showed up <laughs> in the, in the North. You know, it's funny. I, you know, I was watching this last night and I was about maybe a half an hour in and I thought, I know what's coming next, but so far this is pretty dull, but it sure ends with a bang. It Man. sure ends with a bang. Sure do. I, all right, let me ask you this. Was it a bigger gut punch to see the Hound go out or to see Tywin go out? Um, Probably Tywin. Just because, I mean, he, there's so much gravity and there's so much, so much of the, of the universe here. Either it can't, is about to be impacted by him, has already been impacted by him. All of these lesser satellites are just going to fall out of orbit. Well, yeah. So, like, when he's gone, when he's out of the picture, there's this, like, well, who can take the mantle of that level of influence, you know, just legend and strategy, all the things that go along with it, right? So, it's like, you get a sense of, well, now everything's up for grabs. And maybe that's part of the, the great twist. Well, narratively speaking... It does have kind of the impact Ned's death did because just as far as all of the different intersecting plots go, Cersei, right. Jamie, Tyrion, the Tyrells, you know, we're starting to see him, you know, Danny get on his radar. Uh, yeah. It's just tons of stuff. You know, the Red Wedding he orchestrated and you know, all that stuff. And now it's like a black hole in the narrative. 
that that it's going to be impossible to fill. And then, but in addition to sort of the narrative hole that that leaves, there's also the just the sense of the political chaos, right? Where King's Landing is just up for grabs right now, right? Because nobody's like, oh, well, Tommen's still there, <laughs> you know. That's it's, right. I mean, it, he. You get a sense that there's there was less danger to a certain degree with King's Landing with him at the helm. People may be less apt to just go after the throne because of Tywin's presence and influence. So there's a lot of that that's just sort of it feels very up for grabs. And mm-hmm. and what you're gonna find out is like how many how much he was relied upon without even knowing it. Like he just took care of stuff. Like just like the very notion that he seemed to be the only guy that really had a, a grasp of the fact that they're in debt. And and there's a lot that goes along with that. And so so he held a lot of information because he we wanted that kind of control. And so now People don't even know what they don't know. Well, that's right. And he was the one that knew that the an alliance with the Tyrells was kind of important, even if you kind of had to hold your nose to do it. Yeah. Whereas if if Cersei was in charge, there's no way that alliance would have happened, right? Right. Cersei is good at a lot of things. One of the things she's horrible at is making alliances. Right. Uh, now, we've, we have not talked about Jojen. No. Jojen dies too. Don't. (laughs) Jojen kind of saw a vision of himself burning back in Craster's Keep, like his hand was burning. Right. And he he was starting to talk a little weird. You know, he's talking about a guy whose days are numbered. Right. So maybe his death was a little bit less. Maybe that was part of it. Maybe we we just didn't really care about him. I don't know. Yeah, I kind of was always like, all right, I don't really know what to think of Jojen. I always felt like, I always felt like, yeah, he, he feels important, but not, not to me. <laughs> it's just a, yeah. I was actually, to me, I was more impacted by the death of that man's little girl. And he like, he brought in her oh, little, yeah, yeah. little burned body. And yeah, he's yeah. like, he's arranging her skull in such oh, a that way. Was, yeah, that was, that was like, I didn't know that girl at all. Exactly. I don't know her name, and I felt like that was more of a gut punch than Jojen. For sure. All right, so let me tell you about what happens in the books to Jojen. Mm-hmm. And this is this is a little bit speculative, all right? But he just kind of disappears. Like, he gets in the cave, so he's safe and sound inside of the cave. And then they just don't see him for a few days. And then Bran gets fed like the some kind of psychedelic goo that looked okay. like that kind of looks like veiny flesh and uh so there are, there's a theory running around that the children of the forest turned jojen into paste uh-huh. and so kind of his little magical you know green scene body got turned into a psychedelic goo to enhance brand's abilities. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's a little dark, but uh, I think that that's a little bit more interesting than getting blown up by like a pine cone bomb. (laughs) Yeah, man. Magic came in uh, hard and fast in this one. Yeah. We, we met the children, Uh, the children. And then, uh, yeah, the, uh, like, I don't know, sort of like labyrinth or meets, 
it or something going on. Well, a little Pirates of the Caribbean, too. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. There's something about a zombie that's just inherently more... Like, the more flesh a zombie has, the more it seems like a zombie. Yeah. If it's just a skeleton with a sword, I, I'm just... You know, you're like, eh. Pirates well, of the Caribbean. Yeah, or Evil Dead. Sure. Uh, Army of Darkness type stuff. But there's always something about... And not if you notice, like zombies can be lumbering. Man, skeleton soldiers, they fast. I mean, they don't have any skin slowing them down. Yeah, well, that's a little strange because they no muscle. have muscles. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I mean, I know it's all magic, right? But, <laughs> but you would think. Right. But I guess you're right that a skeleton would probably be more aerodynamic. Yeah, I suppose it's a it's a lot. That was a lot to take in. I mean, it was a great scene. Um, but I'm like, wow, we're just, we're just here comes more magic. I guess. I mean, and like magic that I'm, you know, I'm I'm reconciling dragons. I'm reconciling the mm-hmm. undead. I'm I'm reconciling people coming back to life and and uh, you know, scroll. Oh yeah, to- people coming back to life. So, Kyburn is able to. I think he's going to be able to salvage the mountain. Yeah. Which, again, added even more surprise when I see the hound die. Because I'm like, okay, well, we're setting this up still. Like, there's still, you know, yeah. every time you think that there's going to be this moment between two characters, that some one of them just dies. So, like, there's just no, it's it's fascinating how, and, and you still are so used to that as a trope. Yeah, yeah. That when it when it gets sort of circumvented, it, it, still, it still feels jarring. It's like, but then, but wait, but I don't, but how is he, uh, okay. So, and then Cersei says, will it weaken him? Right. And Kyburn's got this great, he's like, oh, no. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we're going to have a little Frankenstein's monster happening with. Uh, sure. Why, why wouldn't we? Why, yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. So Danny locks up her dragons. I was, I think that this is brilliant. I think it's like, as long as. D- Danny's power is held in check. I'm going to be interested in her story. The more yeah. the more power she gets, it, it, the more it's going to seem like, oh well, all she has to do is decide to go conquer everything. Right, no right. Going to stop her. Um, but I like the idea that okay, these dragons are too small to attack, and now these dragons are too wild to control. Yeah. So I, I well, like one of them's just gone. I mean, one of them's gone and like eaten kids. Yeah. So uh, she locks locks them up. So that's it. That's so talk about a, a a switch, right? I mean, like we talk about this all the time. Like, uh, you normally the seasons end with an increase of of Danny's power. That's right. Yeah, she's going to be on the rampage. She's going to get yeah. superpower or something. So, so this one is is like she's she's uh, she's being more burdened with the price of leadership. Yeah, she's decided she wants to rule, and now she's learning what that looks like. Yeah, her her ability to just sort of just go for it, it's going it's dwindling dramatically because she's seen the uh, the the fruits of that firsthand. Like so, the idea of her being known as the mother of dragons, and every time they give her introduction, and there's just you know title after title after title, and she's right. and she's always just so giddy to hear it, and now she's got to take the big one, the mother of dragons, and she's got to lock them up, and. Uh, and and so then I'm like, well, wait, well, what now? I mean, 
it's not like she's just kenneling them. I mean, it feels like she's just putting them in a prison, so to speak. Yeah, she doesn't really know what to do. And how does that, and and my first thought is, how does that help you tame them? Yeah. So it feels like taming them is now no longer a priority, just the possession of them. And I'm just like, to me, that feels, that feels like that's, that could be a problem. It's a big problem. I think it's a big problem because the one thing she had going for her before was that she kind of could command them, right? Mm -hmm. And people could see her command them and that added to her mystique. Right. But this is a problem for her, for sure. Um, Cersei reveals to Tywin that she and Jaime are lovers. Right. And, okay, so you could read this as he's kind of willfully turned a blind eye and he he didn't want to believe it or he just couldn't believe it. Uh, What's your sense? I think it's all of that. I mean, I think, I think he, uh, I think he's a, if there's smoke, there's fire kind of guy. I don't believe that he thinks it's a fake news issue that that was going around. Right. Because if he knows anything about what was gotten Ned in the situation he was in, it it all had to do with that. Mm -hmm. This is a big, this is a big concept. It's not just a rumor. It's the, it's the, the actions in which set off, you know, a war with Stannis Baratheon. It's, because of that, that, uh, you know, Winterfell is in the condition it's in. I mean, the whole thing is set off by that. So to just be completely dismissive of it as just a rumor doesn't seem in line with Tywin's nature. Now, to be sort of willfully ignorant, then everything you're fighting to protect is now a problem because your son or your grandson does not have the rightful. You're not doing this right. You've actually you've acquired the throne on a lie and you'd much rather if you're Tywin acquire it by conquering. How do you, can you justify being sort of this greater good type leader? If your entire defense is defending a lie? I think I read this a little differently than maybe you do. I think he's so focused on legacy that he actually has neglected to see what's going on right under his nose. Mm -hmm. And I think his character is more interesting if he has that weakness. So I don't know. Maybe I I kind of read it as if he just really had no idea because he never really cared. Mm. Uh, and and what what it, what was his strength ended up being his weakness in the end, right? Interesting. So that's how, that's how I read it anyway. It's an interesting read. It makes him more, I think, uh, a more complex character. It it seemed, like I said, I just it would seem illogical to me that with all of his knowledge of everything going on in the kingdom, that uh, he'd be like, yeah, I think I may have heard something about that. You know what I mean? It just doesn't. He's a, he's a man of contingencies mm-hmm. and he's a man of research. I just so it just seem it would seem surprising to me. Sure. Um, all right. So Tyrion becomes a murderer. Hmm. And he murders his lover, and I forgot that he said sorry afterwards. Yeah. That sorry just really got me. Yeah. That's dark, man. So does that make sense to you? I feel like with Tywin out of the picture and Shay out of the picture, I'm just like, well, but really? I mean, how did we how did she go there? How did how did she go from 
because we talked about how like it seemed that there was like kind of an understanding when he was mm-hmm. calling her all the things that like look yeah. this is they're both truly in love everything about her character seemed to be genuinely concerned about Sansa genuinely in love with Tyrion then we see the 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 testimony and it feels like okay there's got to be something else at play here because this seems incongruous with where we left them off so maybe there's a threat or there's some other thing going on or and then to find her in Tywin's bed I'm just like I'm like I'll be honest I was just like I don't know if I buy this I, I feel like I feel like how, I, I mean sure it's a oh, great well, plot right. device it's a great yeah. plot device but I just feel like that's what it was more than anything else okay let's let's talk about it so do you think she had a choice to be in his bed uh I don't know I mean if Tywin says get in my bed my sense of it is that she's being used. She was used in the trial and he's continuing to use her. So she could be like, well, I can either play the game here or I could wind up dead. Yeah. But then that doesn't explain why she picks up a knife. Right. I mean, she tries to stab Tyrion. I don't know what she's going to do with the knife. It seems like she's going to do Tyrion harm. Yeah, she doesn't seem like she's just using it for self-defense. So and she doesn't scream. I don't know. I don't know. So I just that bothered me because I, it's a moment that took me out because now I'm asking questions. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great moment in terms of like, here we are again, Tywin ruining his, you know, love and sets him sort of in motion to do what he does next. But I, I don't get the motivation that brought Shay into that bed. And that so that's where I was a little taken out. And I don't know if that's in the book, but I definitely it you know, I, I had to suspend that and be like, all right, I guess. Oh yeah, this is in the book. And I okay, so here's another way to look at it. I mean, one one way to look at it is that Tywin is using her, right? Uh the mm-hmm. other way to look at it is that Tywin's using her. Plus, she kind of wants to get back at Tyrion who has jilted her mm-hmm. and what better way to get back at Tyrion than going into the bed of the man he hates most in the world or the the man he has the, the most complicated relationship in the world. Yeah. But she doesn't know that he's going to find out. So what's the, isn't that the point? The point of doing something like that is because you wanted to, to wound. And if this guy's sentenced to death, yeah. you may never get there. Sure. So, so what's, what's the, so that's, these are the things that I just, I don't, and and from a Tywin perspective, I could see him just using her, but it's a it all seems very specific and not not consistent. Okay, option three. Shay's a survivor, and she had a good thing going with Tyrion. She was the lover of the hand of the king, and then Tyrion fell on hard times, and she could have tried to make that work, but then Tyrion tries to like ship her out of town. And she's thinking, well, he's out of the picture. I'm a survivor. This is how I survive. If the new hand of the king is interested, then why not? Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I mean, okay, here's the other thing about it that that probably doesn't help. um, Because I don't quite get the motivation behind picking up the knife. Unless she think she's in danger uh, i don't know i don't know why she would think she was in danger from Tyrion. she ends up getting choked to death with the golden chain that Tyrion bought her right anyway no i mean it's all powerful and it i think without that you don't 
it's hard to get Tyrion to uh, kill his father as opposed to just leaving, right? I mean, um, so I think that that's, that's an important catalyst. I guess I just would have liked a little more... <sighs> It's just you could even a little dialogue or you know something like even if she was just to say something along those lines of like I don't know it just went right to it and I mean I understand his crime of passion kind of thing but again I I just and maybe I maybe I was I was a fool for buying the the relationship but I never it never well, felt faulty yeah I okay so Varys offers her a bunch of diamonds to leave. And she decides she's not going to take him because she's in love with Tyrion. I mean, that's how I that's how I'm reading the whole thing. Right. So how is that? How does that work? Maybe she was so much in love with Tyrion that he, when he kicks her out and says some really hurtful things to her, now she's the jilted lover, and now she, you know, she actually she feels the same way Ygritte does. Where it's right. kind of like, I hate him so much now I could kill him. Right. I don't know. Yeah, yeah maybe. I guess. I mean, I'll, 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 I'll have to allow it. Okay, so here Tyrion kills Shay. I got the sense he didn't think he was going. He didn't think he was going to find her. Number one. Right. This was not premeditated. And I don't know what he thought was going to happen, but when she pulls out the knife. And he starts fearing for his life. I mean, he may be pretty strong for a man of his stature, but he, she still has a bit of an advantage on him. Right. All right. So I'm, I'm kind of winding up to the question here. Do you read this as murder or do you read this as self-defense? Oh, um, murder. Really? It's crime of passion. If the Look. roles were reversed... And Tyrion's laying in bed, and he pulls a knife on her, and then she, to defend herself, chokes him to death. Um, if the circumstances are the same, where he, she has been sentenced to death because of his testimony yeah. of lying, and he's in bed with her mother, who has had a history of ruining... Uh, her life with lovers i think i'd be more inclined to think that uh it was murder a crime of passion is he's a, he's a man condemned he's a man that is is trying to flee death by the hand you know by the the order of his own father in his father's bed is his ex-lover who basically helped kind of seal the deal in terms of his uh mm-hmm. um, his sentencing Mm-hmm. And so there's, she's betrayed him. His father's betrayed him. I think he's got one thing, and he's just, he's like, you know what? Uh, I'm a dead man anyway. I'm gonna go down swinging. I'm not letting these people that screwed me over get out of this thing any better than I was. That's that's mm-hmm. what I, I mean. And again, I don't know that it's that's a lot of words to assume that that's how much was going on in his head. But I think it goes by pretty quickly. Um, well, yeah, he's a pretty complex character, and so there's a lot that goes into something that's going to alter his character irreparably. Because this changes the way Cause what's we his see other... him, it changes the way that he's going to see himself. So what, what's his other option, right? So like, let's say he sees her, and then she doesn't pull out a knife. Are they going to talk it out? She's 
she could go warn Tywin. She could sound. She could say, "Hey, he's leaving." I mean, what are you? Without mm-hmm. unless she's still in love with him, she's kind of in the way of his escape. Well, let's say she is still in love with him. What if he has the presence of mind to say, "Hey, you kept on saying let's get on a ship and flee. Here's a chance. Here's our chance." But the knife comes out. I mean, that's the that's the thing I can't. Well, I don't think he's. I don't think he's ever going to say that because she's in the father's bed. I think that die was cast as soon as he saw that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's. I think we don't. I think there could be a natural inclination to not want to paint Tyrion as a murderer because it it challenges our ability to sympathize. And, yeah, that's right. And I mean, it's really point, difficult, especially. Like everything about it, everything about the scene suggests that he's guilty and he knows he's guilty. Yeah. So the idea, the idea that like maybe you were saying that, you know, you, you prefer the reading of Tywin as someone who was so focused that he, he was ignorant to some important things around him and that makes his character more rich. I would, I would suggest the same thing that the idea that the calculated, always thinking kind of sympathetic and maybe the one guy with empathy for for Bran, empathy for the Starks, empathy for the people mm-hmm. in Flea Bottom, all these different things, that he too has a breaking point. You know, the very same way that, you know, it's like, ah, you know, I'm, I'm starting to root for Jamie, I'm starting to root for Hound, and then they become who they are, and then so we go back to condemning them. Mm-hmm. This is almost a reversal, right? You know, now we're like, oh, well, gee, this certainly complicates Tyrion, am mm-hmm. I willing to then uncomplicate? Like, if he does some more good things, am I able to go back the same way that I went back to the negative with the Hound and, and Jamie? So, I mean, I think that there's an interesting character arc that um, that gets upset by this because now you know we we want to we want to latch onto somebody to root for, and now he's a murderer. So, can you still root for him? Um, and I think that's the challenge, and I think that's a necessary challenge. Yeah, well said. Very well said. If you're going to rate the the fights between the Viper and the Mountain and Brienne and the Hound, which which of these fights would you rate higher? I actually think the Brienne and the Hound one was pretty great. I thought it was pretty great. I thought it was pretty great when they were just exchanging hockey punches to the face. Yeah, yeah. And there was something about it that um, maybe it was the directing, but compared to like the Viper and the Hound, because there was so much um, pageantry that went along with it too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, with the Viper and the Mountain. And whereas this was just like, I mean, and honestly, when you're in this kind of situation, you're like, from a story perspective, I have no idea who's going to win this thing. And well, the hound's be, it, a little bit yeah. slowed, right? The hound is slowed down because he's got some sort of infection on his neck. Yeah. And there was kind of a buildup, like Arya said, look, you're walking a lot slower than you used to walk. You should have right. let me burned it. And Brienne, I mean, we know Brienne is a... She can she, hold her own against Jamie. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I, I found it all very believable. Yeah, no, it was, it was a really good scene. Um and again, it's still kind of surprising because to see the hound go and man, Arya, Arya does get to, I mean, that, her, that sequence where he's just basically trying to goad her into sticking a knife into the heart was just so miscalculated on his part. Okay, let's talk about Arya. All right. So in addition to us, I mean, can we still root for Tyrion? We have to ask that question about Arya too, because 
uh, it's one thing to have her get revenge on Polliver, who's a world class asshole. Right. The Hound, we actually start to, we've started to like the Hound a little bit. Right. And he's done some, you know. And we just had that mercy killing one. episode where. Yeah. It's like, you know. I, look, her philosophy is believable to me. Her philosophy is that, hey, I believe in death. And sometimes it's not the worst thing in the world, death. Right. You know, it's just you're just ending and and slipping into nothingness. And sometimes it can be a mercy. This is kind of her looking into his eyes as he's pleading with it, as as he's pleading and sort of enjoying his agony. Yeah. So can I? Yeah. Can I root for Arya in the same way? That I did before. Well, I think Arya and you know, and Heather was really keen to remind you know me of the of her age, and uh, I mean, if, the, if she's in in a very short period of time at a very young age, has witnessed and endured uh, just a boatload of tragedy. Yeah, and to think that that's not going to have some sort of a a lasting and negative impact on someone's worldview. Um, it's the, it's the, the creation, right? We're actually getting like, so all these other people are just, we're just sort of thrust into their lives. The hound is this killing machine. So is the mountain. Jamie mm-hmm. is, you know, sociopath, this, that, all this other stuff. We get a little bit of background through stories and this and that, but Aria, we're getting this to watch transform real time. Mm-hmm. So, so we're getting to see, you know, whether she ends up like the hound or whether she ends up like a, a, a Jamie type character down the road, we're getting an origin story to someone that we've probably seen already um but we just got thrust into their into their life sort of already in progress so it's so when all the times we've talked about trying to create a certain sympathy for jamie but it just seems to be elusive well if we had seen him at this age endure what she endured maybe maybe you do feel it because you're just like well this guy had no choice you know he never had an opportunity Mm -hmm. to do otherwise and that's the thing with aria is that you just see that like so it's you you're getting to watch tragedy unfold and so i think you can still yeah root for her is a different story right because i don't i we're, we may get to a point where we don't have the option to root for her anymore we're just we just feel for her and mm-hmm. and i think that that so depending on how her narrative shapes out if she ends up a, a hound-like figure it, it will be harder and i think it will be almost impossible to see any death as like satisfying because instead, it's like just one more step into decay. Yeah, this is Michael Corleone in the sense that he's just, you just can't take your eyes off him. He's just mm-hmm. so interesting. Uh, and you're seeing him kind of spiral into depravity, just become the monster that his father was, you know, becoming more and more of an antihero, but still really compelling to watch, right? Yeah. And I think Arya's kind of along these same lines where you're, she's just super compelling to watch, but it's like every step she takes, she's becoming more and more of an anti-hero. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, further, further to the point, Heather's point, she's a kid, you know? Yeah. And so the question is how long before it's, there's no redemption or have we already hit that spot? So that's the thing is her character goes from someone you're like, I hope things work out to like, eh, I don't know, man. I keep watching this spiral. This could be rough. Dismemberment count. I do believe 
that Brienne bites off a piece. Oh yeah, of the hound's ear. Yes, yes. She, she goes full Pretty Mike Tyson. Yep, his Evander Holyfield. And and I like that she fights dirty because she's you know, you think that she's you know sort of this pristine noble knight, but right. She well, can get down an, in the dirt. And it was an important thing for her character too, because now we're like, okay, so she's she's not just a Oberyn. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh yeah okay so that's good that's good all right let's let's talk about the Brienne meter pretty high pretty high on Brienne all right yeah good. uh and you got to think she's gonna try to chase Arya at this point yeah I, mean, I would assume so and she what else is she living for at this point? well yeah exactly <laughs> I mean until she realizes what she's got in Pod there's really no other exactly and that's man purpose. talk about it talk about a hidden gem there. Do you think he'd mention it at some point? Varys, I feel like Varys, I feel like the trial scene makes more sense now because I think he's putting on a show yeah. during the trial, so he he would not be suspected as an right. ally, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, like he knew what he was going to do to some extent. That gives me hope. You know, I, I don't like losing the Tywin character, but if I get some Varys and uh, Tyrion in the future, I'm I'm okay with that. So, okay, so with Tywin gone, it seems like King's Landing, the power brokers at King's Landing are Cersei and Marjorie. Yeah. And Varys, I suppose. Um, I think he can still wreak some havoc, but just as far as who's got their hooks into Tommen, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Cause, I mean that that it it helps Cersei with Tywin gone because I mean Tywin's all about like now nah, your focus is going to be on your uh, your sham marriage that's going to happen, yeah, right? Yeah, there's no way she's getting married now, right? <laughs> no, and that's the thing, right? So so she has so so he basically said, look, you're gonna you're not going to have any time. So it basically it's Marjorie and Tywin tug of war on Tom, and now now Cersei is going to. I mean, I just the the Tyrells seem like <laughs> don't don't get cozy Tyrells. I would imagine. That Marjorie has a leg up here. Because Tommen is a boy of a certain age where biology just rules every synapse in your brain. Yeah, that's fair. And 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 Marjorie's pretty good at playing that game. Yeah. And playing uh, it with a certain innocence for him too. Like she really when she went to visit him in his room, I mean she 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 was PG seductive. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we never talked about that scene in depth, but I found it really creepy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. She's just using every bit of his, you know, budding teenage sexuality against him. Yeah. It's there just gross. Gross, yeah. gross, gross, um, gross. So I think Marjorie's, I mean, I, I think she. if we're, if we're going to do a power ranking, I think she's got to go up in the power ranking because... Tom is at that age where he starts to resent his parents, mm -hmm. start to want to distance himself specifically from his mother. Right. And, uh, you know, as, as a lot of teenage boys do. And then of course, you know, he, he just, just now budding, you know, awakening. Right. And Marjorie is there to feed the beast. 
I still would place Danny at the top of the power rankings. What do you think? I, I agree. I think, I mean, Wild Dragons still feels like, like it's something. <laughs> Tame Dragons are great. Wild Dragons are probably okay. In the books, Danny's got this big problem with dragons, and that's where her story kind of ends in that she really doesn't know how to control these dragons. And... um there's this side narrative about this fancy magic horn that will bend a dragon's will to whoever has the horn. Huh? So there's a lot of fan speculation about this at this point in the season, because Sam finds in, in addition to finding all that uh, obsidian, Mm -hmm. he finds this horn along with it. And there's, so there's this question about, did he, did he find the magic horn or whatever? Interesting. Um, so anyway, it's a big deal in the books, and that's kind of where her story's at at this point. She hasn't figured out how to tame her dragons yet. Mm. Some would argue, Steve, is that you've seen the best that Game of Thrones has to offer because the end of this season kind of goes downhill. Okay. So, I mean, some fans would say, look, you're going to see flashes of brilliance over the next few seasons, but you've seen the peak. You've seen the pinnacle of Game of Thrones. Is there is there satisfying things that happen in terms of what oh, happens? Yeah. These, then, then that's oh, yeah. Sick. In fact, I think I would place season six pretty high on my... Pretty, pretty high on my list. Okay. In fact, I might even say season six is better than season four, and I know that that would infuriate a number of people. So, but you're going to have to slog through season five first. Okay. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just (laughs) season five is just. Not to build you up. (laughs) Just just, just from the the entire season is just from the point of view of of a box that uh, Tyrion is in. You could just skip ahead. (laughs) (laughs) That would actually be pretty great. If I just gave you like a five-minute synopsis of season five and we skipped right (laughs) into season six. That's perfect. We try to make it super easy to support making podcasts at Bald Move. Just join the club. But some people aren't a joining type. Or maybe they're already in the club but want to add a little bit of gratuity for an especially great season of coverage. Or for a podcast that really spoke to them or gave them that bit of support in a tough time. For these and for whatever other reason you might have, our tip jar is always open. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click the donate option to say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate it. Once again, check out support.baldmove.com for all the great ways to help me and Jim keep making the podcast you love. Since the dawn of time, we've been putting clothes on our back that identify us with our people, our group, our tribe. And why Bald Move might be one of the smallest, weirdest tribes out there, transcending all concepts of border, class, culture, and creed, we still have respect for the old ways. At support.baldmove.com, you can get t-shirts, hats, mugs, and more. We have something for every one of our podcasts, or just wear the four pips of the Bald Move logo with pride. Bald Move merch beats running around naked. And they make a great gift for the Bald Move fan in your life. Join our tribe. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click on merch to start shopping.
You've been listening to quite a few Bald Move podcasts now, but you're not in the club? Whoo boy, you are missing out. Not only are all of our premium club podcast feeds completely ad-free, but we have lots of other great content exclusively for people in the club. There's a weekly lunch with Jim and Aaron where we chat with fans about anything and everything from TV and films, food, fun, life advice, and more. But there's also Off the Clock, our premium podcast where we talk about all the shows we don't have time for on our public feeds. Plus, you get access to our full spoiler-filled first-round movie reviews of our newly released films. Don't forget Instant Take and Talk podcast where we give our hot takes and discuss television shows with our fans live and immediately after the episode airs. With mega shows like House of the Dragon coming this summer, we're going to have lots to talk about. Not to mention access to our fun and friendly community of club members with exclusive Discord channels and a dedicated forum. It's one of the best places on the internet to hang out and chat about pop culture. Bottom line, you're helping two regular type guys in the Midwest make the content you like to listen to, which some would say is reward unto itself. Help keep the lights on and the bits flowing at Bald Move. And get some awesome content for yourself. Head to support.baldmove.com to join the club today. For this week's Bird's Eye View, I want to talk a little bit more about my conversation with Linda. In a previous Bird's Eye View, I made it very clear about my feelings about ethnic representation in Hollywood, and I think that I try to communicate some of that to Linda. But I think that there are some listeners that might have wished that I didn't have her on at all. I have to tell you that I don't come at this as a social media activist. I don't spend a lot of time on social media anymore because I found it depressing. I am an activist at times. I will march at times for things I believe in, and I donate money to causes that I believe in. At my core, I'm an academic. And as an academic, I'm interested in the dialogue. I'm curious. I want to hear what someone else with a different point of view thinks. And I'm committed to finding the best arguments in the other. And I'm I'm interested in finding... What's weakest about my own arguments? And I'm interested to see where that conversation goes, to see if there's something that fruitful comes out of the tension. In other words, I don't need conversation partners that have my same views, even on ethical matters. That's not how academia works. So because I come at these conversations like an academic, I'm of course going to be open to hear views that I don't agree with. And it doesn't mean that I need to persuade the other person. It doesn't mean that I need to be persuaded by the other person. Sometimes the conversation is worth having simply to keep lines of conversation open. If we can't have conversations about low stakes topics like Game of Thrones, how are we going to learn how to have conversations about things that are of more import? And that is all for this week.